uh, what a joy it is to be able to gather together. Um, I uh, just returned from the Worship God conference in Louisville, Kentucky that I was helping lead for Stopping Grace Music, and uh, Dana and Tim also were there, and what a wonderful time we had, we were praying for us. Uh, gathered with several hundred people, uh, most of whom in some way are serving their churches uh, week after week in in leading corporate corporate singing and um, our hope through that time is is to to equip uh, equip these brothers and sisters to serve their churches more effectively as they seek to help them work Christ well and more richly as they seek to help people uh, encounter the glory and greatness and grace of God and uh, particularly through song uh, but also in the entirety of the gathering. I think it can be, um, or one, one thing that we consistently seek to get across in those contexts. Conferences are great. They, there's benefit from conferences, but conferences are not the thing. Uh, and God did not send his son Jesus so that he might have a bride made of conferences. That's, that's not the thing. The thing is what we get to do right now. Uh, as we gather together and we sing together and we fellowship with one another and as we hear God, God's word together and are formed into... Uh, this this building, this living building, this spiritual temple uh, by the Holy Spirit. When uh, did you return? Say that again. When did you return? When did I return? Uh, that, mm, I think I landed at 7.50 this morning. <laughs> but what a joy it is to be with you. Uh, there's nowhere else I don't want to be, I'd rather be, uh, than with you all. And... Uh, there's this, this quote, I think I've shared it before, uh, but it might have been several years ago, a quote that I came across uh, by a Puritan pastor, David Clarkson, and he has this, uh, this uh, what's, treatise, and it's titled, Why Public Worship is to be Preferred Over Private. And the whole thing is making a case for why, while, while private worship, so our spiritual disciplines, individual, is wonderful and a wonderful gift, what we should really prefer is, is the public worship of the church. And so he's making a biblical case for this. Fascinating. But he says this at one point. He said, The Lord is most there where he is most engaged to be. So that's where God is most present. God is omnipresent. He's present everywhere. But he's most present where he is most engaged to be. But he has engaged himself to be most there where most of his people are. The Lord is engaged to be with every particular saint. But when the particulars are joined together in public worship, there are all the engagements united together. So God is, is particularly engaged with each one of us in Christ by the Spirit. But as we're all joined together, all the more so, the Lord engages himself to let forth, as it were, a stream of his comfortable, quickening presence to every particular person that fears him. But when many of these particulars join together to worship God, then these several streams are united and meet in one. So the presence of God, which enjoyed in private, is but a stream, and public becomes a river, a river that makes glad the city of God. And we get to enjoy and drink from that river together, as he is the, the Lord of heaven and earth, the Lord of hosts, the King of kings, and he is with us. And he delights to speak to us in his word, and that is what we are, uh, by God's grace, going to see and hear this morning. So may God give us grace to... Uh, here and eyes to see and, and minds and hearts that receive his word by the Spirit. Would you open your Bible to Colossians 3? Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. 
We're going to spend time looking at these few verses together. And uh, my point is quite simple this morning. And it's this, who we are shapes how we live. Who we are shapes how we live. For those who have placed their trust and their hope in Christ, you have been given a new identity. So you're no longer defined by your desires or your thoughts or your appetites or your quests or your family or the team you cheer for or your country. You are defined by Christ. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And this new identity, this new life that we have, should shape and inform everything. It should inform and shape all that we are and all that we do. And that's what this passage reminds us of. Who we are shapes how we live. Those who have trusted in Jesus are called to live distinct lives. What they desire changes, what they think about changes, what they do changes. Now, the verses that we're going to look at, they're part of this letter of, that Paul writes as he is in prison in Rome. And he writes to a group of Christians that he's never met, who live in a place called Colossae that he has never been to. So what prompted this letter? Let's consider that just for a moment before we get to the text. Now, Paul had a friend named Epaphras, and Paul preached the gospel, and Epaphras heard the gospel, and was brought to salvation. And he brought this message of salvation to Colossae. And there he proclaimed this glorious good news for all who believe in Jesus. And, and what happened when, when God's word went forth? Do you know what happened? A church was built. But after a little while, some within that church, actually, I want to just back up. So a church was built. And that's just what God's word always does. When God's word goes forth, it doesn't return void. And God's word is a creating word. It's a, it's a word that comes, and then from nothing, there is something. That happens from, from the beginning of creation, and that happens in every person's salvation. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, and God speaks, and you're alive. When God's word goes forth in Colossae, there is no church. No believers exist, and God speaks. And now there is this chosen race, this royal priesthood, this holy nation that's being built together. When God speaks, stuff happens. But after a little while, some within the church began saying, you need something more. We need something more. They're saying, you know, like what Epaphras has said is, is good. But if you really want a good life, there's got to be some more. There's got to be something else. And, and people that heard this, you know what happened? They started believing it. They're like, oh, maybe we need more. Maybe we need, I mean, if it was in, in America now, maybe it, maybe we need a better sound system. Or maybe we need uh, a bigger building. Or maybe we need that latest technology. Like, maybe, maybe there's more. Or maybe we need to finally do that program that, we've been, that I thought we've always needed. That's the thing we need. Or maybe we need to do that book study. Well, only if we did that book study, everything would be all right in this church. They believed that the gospel that Epaphras proclaimed was good. It was good and right and true, but it was not enough. Need something else. And Epaphras goes back and tells Paul, Hey, Paul, this gospel's great, but I've got a problem now in Colossae. And so Paul writes to tell them, You have all you need in Jesus. So walk in him. And this is what he says in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. If you're open, you can just look there. 
Paul writes, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. As you received him, walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now, Paul knows that the reality is that this world, the devil, and the sinful flesh, and, and uh, they all stand opposed to this idea of walking in Christ. The world, the flesh, the devil, they're constantly trying to knock God's people off track, to get them to not walk in Christ, to walk in something else. And so Paul warns the Colossian church of this danger, and he reminds them about what should define them. He writes to help them remember who they are. And if you, if you study Paul's letters, he actually does this pretty consistently in all of his letters. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, he's writing to a church that's in disarray, that has all kinds of problems. Like, problems that it's hard for us to fathom. They've got those kinds of problems. And Paul writes to them to remind them who they are. If you remember who you are, then all these problems are going to be brought into perspective. And that's why he's writing down there. He wants to remind his readers that they are in Christ. And so as we come to our text, Paul transitions to what this actually looks like. What does it look like to walk in Christ, to be defined by him? And let us see what he says together. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4 is the, the word of God for us today. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Thanks be to God for his word. Now in this passage, we see something of what happens when we are united with Christ, when we find our identity in Christ. This new identity has implications for how we are to live our lives. Because we are in Christ, Paul is saying, live then like this. This morning we're going to look at the, the foundation uh, for this new way of living and see that what, what Paul gives us to, what he calls us to. And the big idea is that your identity in Christ transforms what you want, what you think about, and what you do. Who you are in Christ changes your will and affections. Your mind, your heart, and your hands. Indeed, who you are in Christ, this new identity transforms your whole life. And as we consider that big idea, we're going to just focus on two simple points. The first is this, that your identity in Christ transforms your affections. Transforms what you want. Uh, let's see, it would have been now about 18 years ago, there was this girl that I loved. And uh, her name was Christine. And as I got to know her, I became a student of her. I was interested in her interests. I wanted to know her interests. And I wanted to align my interests with her interests. And I discovered that she liked certain things. And one of the things that she liked was baseball. And in particular, the Baltimore Orioles. Now, up until that time, I was pretty indifferent to Baltimore Orioles. But hanging out with Christine changed that. I started watching Orioles games. I wanted to go to Orioles games. I started reading about the team. I wanted to wear Orioles t-shirts. Because of who I was as Christine's boyfriend, my affections changed. I went from not caring about the Orioles to caring about the Orioles. And this is similar to what Paul begins with. In verse 1 he writes, If then you have been raised with Christ, if this is who you are, this is what you're going to do. Seek the things that are above. 
He's saying, hey, you have a new identity. You are in Christ. And this new identity results in, in changed affections, renewed desires. And Paul is saying that because of who we are, because we are found in him, then what do we do? We seek the things that are above. Now, just as my identification with Christine changed my desires, our identification with Christ changes our desires. And I think it's important for us to know this, this seeking the things that are above, when Paul says that, it's, it's implied there is this continual seeking, this continual pursuit that takes place in our heart, on our part. It's, it's this fire that we continually have to stoke, a daily practice that we have to cultivate. Because of who we are now, then, then every day we are seeking, we are, we are seeking to live as we are. I, it's an interesting time. I'm going to stick with baseball for a minute. Uh, right now, is, is there's a trade line coming, deadline coming up, and so there will be players that will play a game, and perhaps during the game, they've got their jersey on for whatever team they represent, and perhaps during the game, a TV camera will catch them, like giving hugs to guys in the dugout. And what has just happened? Well, probably what's just happened is probably going to be Juan Soto. Those Nationals fans, sorry guys. The uh, this, this player is going to have a, a new identity. Like, just like that. He's being traded, and he's going to go in the locker room, he's going to take off that jersey, he's going to get on a plane, he's going to go somewhere else, and he's going to have this new jersey that he's now wearing. Now, right at that moment, whoever that player is, they're a part of that new team. But what's going to happen over the next couple months is they're going to be learning what it actually means to be a part of that team what the culture of that team looks like, what the history of that team is. I mean, there's all these things they're going to be learning. And so they're, even though their identity has changed right away, there's going to be this, in a sense, a pursuit, a seeking of the, those things that make them a part of that team. The same is true for us. We are to seek the things that are about because of who we are, and we, we put into daily practice who we are. We continually prepare ourselves for who we are. We continually seek the things that are above. Our affections, our desires, our treasure should be above. This is essential for Christian growth. If you are in Christ, then you must desire and pursue. You must seek things above. Now, what the heck are things above? What, where are these things above? Like, I mean, if I just get a little bit taller, then can I get the things that are above? No, you're right. <laughs> Paul tells us that these things are where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Well, I mean, where is Christ? Like, uh, how can I get to him? These things above, what Paul's talking about, are things, they're about Christ. Our affections shouldn't just long for stuff. They should long for Christ. He is good and the fountain of all good. He is good and the source of all good. All goodness is contained in him. All goodness. Like we just sang. You were just confessing this with your mouth, whether you recognize it or not. We just sang, and that's one of the great things about songs. I get, we get to put words in people's mouths. So they better be good words, and, and I think they are good words. They're true words. All we want, all we need, or sorry, all we have, all we want, all we need is in Jesus. Do you believe that? May we believe it all the more. Seek the things that are above. Seek Christ. The Christian is called to hold to Christ as the center of their 
joy, the hope of their life. So we must ask ourselves, what keeps us from Christ? What comes into competition with desire for Christ? What do we allow to be the center and source of our joys over and against Christ? You see, this is, this is a daily battle for those in Christ. A daily battle of desires. The world, the flesh, the devil, all want to displace Christ as the center of our joy, the object of our affections. And often it is seemingly good things that can take the place of Christ. Now, oftentimes it's good things that take the place of Christ. We need to recognize that. We think, oh, there's this thing I really want. And it's a good thing, so it, it must be fine that I really want this. But if you want that thing more than Christ, you've got a big problem. Think back to my pursuit of Christine and my growing love for the Orioles. I love the Orioles because I love Christine. But what if once Christine and I got married, I started loving the Orioles instead of Christine? Like, how backwards would that be? There's nothing wrong with following and enjoying the Orioles. Nothing wrong with that. But if my love for them was keeping them from loving my wife, then no longer would I be Devin, the husband of Christine. I would then be Devin, the fan of the Orioles. And the one, the former, is much better than the latter. Very true. <laughs> my identity shouldn't lie in these lesser joys. I don't want to exchange a, a good thing, an okay, or a really good thing, for an okay thing. That's not what we want to do. But we are in constant danger of doing this with Jesus Christ. We trade Christ for something far, far less. There's a song we sometimes sing that, that confesses this. It says, I look for worldly treasures and forsake the King of Kings. And then we speak truth to that. But mine is hope in my Redeemer. Though I fall, his love is sure. For Christ has paid for every failing. I am his forevermore. Thanks be to God. So for many of us, what, what do we exchange? Or, or what, what might we, we treasure over Christ? For many of us, it can be security. And we wouldn't necessarily always think of it in terms of security, but that's what it is. We want safety and stability. We want things to just be okay and work. Maybe it's physical security for you. Or financial security. We want to be taken care of, and we want those that we love to be taken care of. Now, this is a good desire. It's a good thing. But if we want this more than we want Christ, if we seek security more than we seek Christ, then we have lost sight of ultimate reality. We've lost sight of what really matters. Jesus tells us where true security can be found. And we see this in Matthew 6. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If we are to lay up treasures in heaven, we must lay down treasures on earth. We must set our hearts on things that are above. In Psalm 16:2, David says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. I know for me the temptation is to think I've got a lot of good apart from you. But do I know David's confession to be true? Do I pray this way? Outside of you, Lord, there is nothing good. Help me to be satisfied in you. Does this describe what you live for? In, every, in, the, in the way that you live, can you see that your affections are for Christ? The Christian's affections 
don't look outside focusing on the stuff we want or what our relationships can give or how we want our circumstances to change. The Christian's affections don't focus inside, looking for hope in how we live or in experiences we have. The Christian's affections not don't look out or in, but up. We look up to Christ and seek him. The Christian's call is to desire him above all else. A helpful way to evaluate this is to ask yourself, if you were encouraged to give thanks, give thanks to God, what are the first things that come to mind? What are the first things that you thank him for? Now, you can thank him for a lot of good things, because everything, he's the giver of every good gift. There's many things we can thank him for. But do I mainly thank him for the blessings that he gives? So food, and safety, provision, security, friends, family, all these good things that we should thank God for. Or do we thank him for himself and for the blessings that come from being in him? I was, I was considering preaching on Psalm 117 this morning. I decided not to. It's Psalm 117. Two simple verses. And praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. And so this, this call to praise. God alone is worthy. Look to him. And then the reason why, for great is his steadfast love toward us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. What the psalmist is doing is thanking him for who God is, who he is in his character. That's, that should be the source of our thanksgiving. Fix your eyes on Jesus, who is goodness himself. Look to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, because you are in Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He is the one in whom all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. I mean, that should blow your mind. All the fullness of God is found in him. One theologian says that God is, is holy and unceasingly fulfilled in himself. In God is everything. And all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell in his son, Jesus Christ. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now seek Jesus and may your affections be transformed. Second point, very simply, your identity in Christ transforms your thoughts, your mind. Paul says in verse 2, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Now this is not just a restatement of what he's just said. He's adding our thoughts to our affections. Seek the things that are above, desire the things that are above. Think about the things that are above. This union with Christ changes what we long for and what we think about. It shapes the, the object of our desires, seek Christ, and what we set our minds on. Paul keeps pointing above. He keeps pointing to Jesus. Set your mind on things above. He's not talking about a place so much as he's talking about a certain quality. He's not saying, get your mind out of this world. Be a monk. Separate yourself from everything around you. In fact, as, as we keep reading in Colossians 3, you're going to see that Paul cares a great deal about relationships in this life, on this earth, how we conduct ourselves in this world. He's not saying, don't think about those around you. Just think about God. Don't ever think about anybody else. He's not saying, don't worry about being a good husband or a good wife or a good business person or a good son or daughter. But what Paul is after is how our minds are oriented, what they're oriented to. So how do we know where our mind is oriented? 
how do we know the orientation of our mind? Well, ask yourself, where, where does my mind go when it's in neutral? And I think for many of us in this day and age, we actually don't have that many times where our mind is just in neutral. Because where do we go? I think for many of us, we'll go to our phone. And we don't allow our mind to be in neutral. And so it's this, this distraction away from other things we might set our minds on. But is, our, is, is your mind set on things above? What do you think about when you have nothing in particular to think about? I mean, think about that, that uh, once you get over the, the, the shock of not having any cell service on your phone, once you get over the shock of that, or your plane, phone being in the airplane mode, or whatever it is, where's your mind go? In the mundane moments of your day, maybe you're brushing your teeth, or you're folding your laundry, or you're driving home from work, where does your mind go? The Christian is called the spiritual mindedness. We are to have a, an upward orientation. We are to set our minds on things above. Now this mindset, this spiritual mindedness, has nothing to do with how smart you are. It doesn't have to do with how many degrees you have, or if you have any degrees, or what your IQ level, but the disposition of your mind. When you are in Christ, you don't need something beyond Christ, because you have all you need in Him. So we are to set our mind on Christ, think on Jesus. I'm going to talk a little bit more later about, about how we might do that. And in the next two verses, Paul gives us the reason for setting our minds on things above. And it functions as this reorientation to reality. And we so often forget who we are. So in these two verses, Paul's going to say, look at who you, look at who you are. And he points to the past and the present and the future transformation that takes place for those who are in Christ. And in, in the same way that Paul does this, I talk often about how as we gather together, we are being reoriented to reality. It's this, as we go about our week, there, there are always things that are saying, no, focus on this. Be oriented towards this. This is what your life is all about. And we gather together. One of the reasons we gather together, gather together, is to be reminded and to be reoriented to things that are above. To be reoriented to who we are in Christ. So Paul says this in verses 3 and 4. This is why you should seek things that are above. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So Paul first goes to the past. He says, you have died. In, two, in uh, chapter 2, verse 20, he says that you have died to the elemental spirits of the world. You have died to, to the cares of this world that seek to weigh you down. Through this death, we have now been, we've been set free from bondage to the temporal distractions of this present world. The, the fleeting attractions of this present world. If you were in Christ, this has happened. It's in the past. You have died. And we, we all right, let me make a second point, then I'm going to say something else. In the present, it says, your life is hidden with Christ and God. What does, it, what does it mean for our life to be hidden with Christ in God? It's not speaking to how we are to live, like we're supposed to just always be in hiding. Like, don't let anybody know that you're in Christ. No, that's not what it's speaking of. Paul is speaking of the security we have in Christ. Our life, the life we live now, is kept safe in Christ. It means that although in this world you will sin and obscure your true identity, if you are in Christ, you are safe and secure in God. There's no doubt before God who you are when you are in Christ. 
You are his son. You are his daughter. And this is a, a present reality. This is true right now. In Christ, in the, in the good shepherd, you have security and safety. Uh, Chris read this earlier. Jesus says in John 10, I give my sheep eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. At times we sing, my light is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. And nothing can change that. There's nothing that can change that reality. Nothing can separate what God has joined together in Christ. Not death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor anything else. Not things present, nor things to come. Not powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's incredible. In the past, we have died with Christ. In the present, we are hidden with Christ. And we live in a world that doesn't want us to think about these things. As, as, for you as a Christian, the world around you does not want you to think about who you are in Christ. And so we live in a world that, that is, presents distractions of every kind all the time. That's only more and more and more. We, we need to be reminded again and again who we are. So in the past, died with Christ. In the present, hidden with Christ. And in the future, we are glorified with Christ. Now perhaps you feel this tension as, as I've been going through this, as we've been considering what it means to be in Christ. It's like, this is all wonderful, and I want that. But so often I'm not that. So often I, I set my mind on things on earth. So often I set my mind on things not that are above, but things that are inside and things that are around me. We, we, we fail again and again and again. And that's where it's wonderful. What wonderful grace. What rich mercy that Paul draws our attention to this future reality. When we will be, to be in Christ means that we will be glorified with Christ. It will be known finally and fully in glory. Though our lives are marked by, by sin that affects us and affects those around us, though our sin causes hurt and pain often to those we love most, there's a day coming when Christ who is your life appears and you will stand before God clothed in his righteousness, spotless. You will stand without sin, without imperfection. You will be seen by all to be absolutely and completely in Christ. His glory will be our glory. So because we are in Christ, we, we labor and we fight against the sin. We seek to put it to death. And this is where Paul's going to go. But before he goes there, he reminds the Colossian Christians and us just of who we are in Christ. And he points to just who we will be when Christ appears in glory. We have a great hope that though, though we fail, though we still fight our sin, we have a great hope in him. And in our lives on this earth, we are being sanctified. We are learning what it looks like, what it means to be in Christ. But there's a day coming when our sanctification will be full and final and complete. John writes about this very same thing in 1 John 3. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. 
Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know, we know, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. When he appears, we will be like him. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So knowing our identity in Christ, it must transform our minds. It must transform our affections. It must transform how we live. Our identity as Christians, it completely changes all that we are. It changes us to have affections directed to God, thoughts set on God. So how do we seek and set our mind on things above? How do we cultivate this Godward orientation and spiritual mindedness? How do we orient our desires and thinking to Christ? Now, there, there are many places that we could go here. But I just want to highlight one as we close. And it's a, it's a growing burden that I have for my own life and, and for Grace Church as a whole. Meditate. Meditate on who God is and what he's done. Meditation is seemingly the biggest waste of time in our culture. Not, and by meditation, I'm not speaking of Eastern meditation, of emptying your mind, of, of all things, but it's intentional meditation that is meant to set our minds and think deeply about who God is, about what he's done, about how that changes our lives. In Psalm 1, the psalmist writes, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree, a, a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Like, sign me up. In all that he does, he prospers. That, this is where blessing is found. Those who meditate on the law of God day and night. Now, now, day and night is not saying, all right, so at 6 a.m. you should meditate on God's law, and then at 10 p.m. you should meditate on God's law. No, the psalmist is using day and night to refer to all your time. God should be on your mind. And through this comes blessing, because God is the source of all blessing. He is the fountain of all blessing. To be blessed is to live a good life, to live a flourishing life. A healthy, growing relationship to the Word of God is the most important aspect of having this blessed condition. George Swinnick, a Puritan, he writes this. He says, when your heart is like wax-hardened, so think about wax that's been hardened, he says, and this is before the electric light that he's saying these things, so it's all the more relevant. Bring it by meditation to the warm beams of this sun, and they will soften. When your heart is dull and dead, if you would but apply it with the meditation of the infinite love and goodness of God, it would be a sovereign means to quicken and revive it. Meditation to the word is what fire is to water. Though water may be naturally so cold, Yet put fire under it, and it will make it hot and boiling. Sometimes you come to God's Word, and maybe you're reading in the morning, or in the afternoon, or in the evening, anytime. You come to God's Word, and you think, like, this is doing nothing for me. It just seems dull. 
and hard to understand and boring. Meditation is, is meant to bring life to the Word of God. So, so when it goes on, so though your heart be cold in regard of affection to the Word, but put this fire under it, and it will boil with love to it. Psalm 119, in its entirety, is a meditation on, on the goodness of the law of God, the goodness of the Word of God. So how do we go about this, this practice of meditation? I'm going to share one, two, three, four, five, five steps. First, pray for the Spirit's help. Pray for the Spirit's help. The psalmist writes in Psalm 119, Open my eyes, that I have to behold wondrous things in your life. Begin. Every time you come to God's Word, every time you come to corporate worship, anytime you are encountering God's Word, pray that the Spirit would help you. Open my eyes, that I may behold wondrous things in your Word. William Bates writes and says, He that is able to stop the sun in its flight, he is able to fix your thoughts and to stop their motion. I love that idea. I mean, because the, the, the greatest enemy to coming to God's Word is our wandering minds. I mean, for me, that's what it is. It's, it's just distraction. I think about this, I think about this, and oh, what about this? Oh, and what am I going to have for, what am I going to do later? And, I mean, you, there your mind goes. But there is a God who stopped the sun. How much more so can stop your thoughts in motion, if you but ask? So pray for the Spirit's help. Second, use Scripture as your guide. So, so if you have daily Bible reading plan, use that as your guide. But choose something to focus on. Uh, consider Ephesians 1. And just think about it for a moment, the chapter. It's a, it's a uh, dense chapter. There's tons in there. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption of sons through Jesus Christ. I mean, it just goes on and on. There's more and more and more. It's like, oh my goodness, like, what do I do with this? Just choose one phrase. Choose one phrase to focus on. In him, we have redemption. The forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches, riches of his grace. That's verse 7. In him we have redemption. I've been redeemed in Christ. Think about that. So use scripture as your guide. Uh, Ephesians 1, great place to start. Psalm 107, a wonderful place to start. Like, really, I mean, there's, a, there's all these places you could go. But those are a couple. But, but don't be, feel like, oh man, I'm only looking at one sentence, like, what a waste. Like, there's so much more Bible that I'm missing out on. No. Read that one sentence. Read it again. Read it again. Read it slow. Meditate on it. Focus on it. Third thing, as you're doing that, question the text and yourself. Ask the text questions. All right, so in him, I have redemption. What does it mean to be redeemed? What, what does that mean? And, and, and consider that. My trespasses have been forgiven. My trespasses have been forgiven. It's not speaking of like just one thing that I've done. It's speaking of all the things that I've done. Thanks be to God. All of my trespasses have been forgiven. I'm going to sin today. In Christ, it's forgiven. So ask questions of the text. How much sin has been forgiven? 
all my sin has been forgiven in Christ. What does it mean for it to be forgiven in Christ? Does that mean I have to do something in order to be forgiven? No, it's been forgiven in Christ. It's because of who I am in Christ that I've been forgiven. Ask questions of yourself. Do I live in the good of this truth? Is it like this with me or not? So I come to Psalm 1, I mean, just, just quoted, uh, blessed is the man who meditates on his law day and night. Is that me? Do I meditate on God's law day and night? Well, no. And then the fourth thing is, resolve once again to follow Christ. If, if meditation just stops in our minds and we don't go beyond that, all we've, all we've done is like just, I mean, gone, gone to school for the day. But meditation should, should make a difference in our lives. And so we resolve to follow him. And then finally, we, we give thanks. Oh, actually, before I get to finally, as we resolve to follow him, we think specifically about how this applies to us. All right, so Psalm 1, blessed is the man who meditates day and night. I don't do this. What might I do to think more upon God's word? How can I set, or Colossians 3, how do I set my things, my mind on things that are above? Well, I mean, there's many things I could do. I could read more scripture. I could talk about God and what he's doing and things that I've written for with other people. I could memorize his word. I could I can store up his word in my heart. There are all kinds of things we can be doing. Gather with God's people. We can sing. Uh, just this there's, there's one guy that we always have worship God. Uh, his name's Adam Wright. He does a corner room music. He's in Birmingham, Alabama. He's a very gifted, very gifted man. And uh, he sets scripture to music. And it's like, when I hear that, I think, oh, that's nice. But like, I would never want to listen to it. But actually, it's like really enjoyable to listen to, too. And so I've memorized probably like 30 psalms because Adam has set these to music that's really enjoyable to listen to. And I'll listen to it when I run or when I'm driving or whatever it is. And it's just, it's filling my mind with the word of God. And then I realize, oh, I know this. And it's been stored up in my heart. What a gift that is. So I want to think through, all right, how, if, if God has said this, what does it mean for my life? How should I then live? And then finally, give thanks for the sure promises of God. Give thanks to God that it's not up to you. Give thanks to him that he is step, full of steadfast love and faithfulness. He is full of mercy and grace. And so we can walk in the good of that. We can live in the good of that. Our identity in Christ, being united to him, being found in him, it transforms our affections and our thoughts. So we seek the things that are above. We set our mind on Christ who is our life. We want to walk in him. Now, we don't pursue any of these things in order to be in Christ. Paul doesn't say that. No words does the Bible say that. We don't have to do this to be in Christ. But because we are in Christ, this is how we then live. This is what we are to seek. This is what we are to work towards, to labor more and more to know him better. No steps that we take pursue spiritual mindedness. Earn our way to be called sons and daughters. It's all a gift of grace, only grace that we are saved. We have been chosen in him before the foundation of the world. But because of the fact that we've been saved, we've been set aside for good works. We are to be holy as he is holy. Because we see no good apart from God, we labor to know and love more and more of God. We, we sing all we have, all we need, all we want is you. And then we seek to cultivate that in our lives. 
Lord, help me to know that all I have and all I need is you. Help me to know that you're the only thing worth wanting. You're the only thing that can satisfy this restless soul. The only thing. He is the all-satisfying one. He is the never-failing one. He is the God who loves us, who saves us, who keeps us. So set your mind and all your affections on Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the work that you've done in Jesus Christ by the Spirit. That though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you've made us alive together with Christ. You have canceled the record of debts that stood against us in Jesus. And because of what you've done, Lord, helps to know that our only hope is in you. Helps to know that we have nothing apart from life in your Son. Helps to walk by the Spirit as we pursue changed hearts and changed minds and changed actions, changed affections. Help us to desire the things that you desire. Help us to desire you. Fountain of all blessings. We thank you, maker of heaven and earth, that you are here with us and you delight to transform us in the image of something. Would you do that here in Jesus' name?